Joan. Joan? No. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 234 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am rekindling the Mr. Blobby love. <sighs> Inexplicable. <laughs> I rekindle is working really hard there actually because I don't think I loved him the first time round. But to explain, my delightful pal Matt Hyten, who you should find on Instagram at at it's Matt Hyten has taken to inserting Mr. Blobby into clips from horror films, and it is hilarious and disturbing in a way that only Mr. Blobby <laughs> can be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, just to be honest, Mr. Blobby himself is worse than... I mean, worse than Psycho, I would say. Oh, totally. Almost certainly. Now imagine him in paranormal activity, Hannah. <laughs> I'm guessing that Jem probably, like... To Mr. No. Bobby because he came with Noel Edmonds. No, the Noel Edmonds thing is only like a much later kind of development in my life, to be honest. It's only quite recently I've been able to uh, understand the allure of Edmonds. Do you think it's an early midlife crisis? I think the midlife crisis is manifesting in all sorts of ways. I don't think that's one of them. <laughs> I'm just interested in who you think is more terrifying, Blobby or Edmonds. Blobby. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> I would say... It's difficult to know because there's also Blobby, but I don't know who's inside Blobby. Edmunds. Because it could be. <laughs> it could be Edmunds. It could be like a Russian doll of terror. And then you open Edmunds and then inside is just like Pandora's box. Just all of the evil of the world shoots out. Matt, if you are listening, you're welcome to all these ideas to make the horror movies <laughs> even more horrific. Go for it. I'm excited. I'd like to see Blobby being like when the guy gets his head cut off by the... Um, you won't know this. I don't know why I'm saying this. In The Omen. When there's the no. sheet of glass. We've not watched that. Me and Jen are like, absolutely not. Of course you haven't. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I'd like to continue our conversation that we had the other day about candles. I'm interested in this, Hannah. What, what can we help you so with? So we were having a conversation about how, you know, candles are really expensive and I don't know what to do with them. And people keep buying them for me. Mm-hmm. And it occurred to me the other day that it might be nice to put them, or not just nice, just a point. There might be a point to them if I put them all in my fireplace because I currently can't use my fireplace because I'm waiting for my chimney to be swept. Not a euphemism. <laughs> but also a euphemism. <laughs> well, actually, also a euphemism. I had a funny conversation with a nurse the other day, but more on that. Never. <laughs> anyway, so, so I decided since they're all in the fireplace, I might light them because it might make the house look cosy. Right. So I've got a load of lit candles in my fireplace. Are they all scented candles? No. Okay, because that would be a big smell. Yeah, disaster. So they're all in my fireplace. And then, because my house is cold, obviously, my brain kept going, oh, go stand by the fire because it kept <laughs> seeing the orange. Right. And then I'd go, oh, it's not fire. And then come back. Sometimes that happened two or three times a minute. <laughs> I had to blow all the candles out because I had this just like, just involuntary. Oh, it's going to say. And my brain refused to learn. So candles, I'm back to my idea that candles are uh, evil. Is it like a mirage, Hannah, do you think? <laughs> I think so. But it's just my brain is incapable of learning. It just won't say, all oh, right, that's candles. Stop standing up, you stupid bitch. It's like an, in a desert of ice cold, you can just you can see the warmth. We're back to it not being a euphemism, but she is a thirsty woman in a desert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and where's my snow? Oh, we've got it all. Yourself lucky. Waltham snow. Not a sniff of it. Not a whisper. Nothing. What's happened here now is that everyone walked around in it and it started to melt 
and then it froze last night and now we just have this basically peaked ice skating rink all over the pavements and it's a fucking nightmare to walk on says the woman who's not left her house (laughs) i did go out i had to go out yesterday and uh and it was comical is all i can say it doesn't snow much around these parts, but I do remember one year when I was about 14 or 15 and it snowed quite a lot. And on my walk to school, I fell over three times <laughs> in the snow, like a Bambi, but nowhere near as graceful. Mickey sent me a message yesterday saying she was walking like a marionette, which amused me a lot. <laughs> That's the only way I could stay upright. I was in trainers. What the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> Later on, our resident music guru, Liz Buckley, and I celebrate the majesty, mischief, and massive talent that is Missy Elliott while shouting, holla, way too much. Consider yourselves warned. I chat to England and Harlequins prop, Shauna Brown, about the rise of women's rugby, why we still need to go further, and about what it's like to be an internet sensation. Sounds horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Not the interview. Being an internet sensation sounds horrible. Yeah. And hold on to your hearts as we watch 1992's festive felt fur and Dickens mashup, The Muppet Christmas Carol, in this week's Rated Or. Come on now! <laughs> but first, definitions, debate, and didn't we already make that a crime? It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where I don't know who Lab Baby are. Jen, do you? Um, no, not a clue. Not a clue. Well, you'll be interested in this then. I saw that they were trending on Twitter yesterday and I thought, I don't know, I got a bit confused with Lad Bible and I thought it would probably be something quite, you know, weird yeah. and funny and maybe us, maybe something a bit sexist. And it turns out that they are, I don't know if a band's the right word, and they've they've joined together with Martin Lewis to do a cover of Do They Know It's Christmas in aid of the Trussell Trust this year. Right. Which... You'd be forgiven for not knowing who they were for that. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that they've had the Christmas number one for the last, like, four years. Have they? What what are they, though? Exactly. I'm really glad that you don't know who they are. Because if there's any indication of how out of touch I am, someone who's had more Christmas number ones than, I don't know, you know, the Beatles or the Spice Girls, you'd think you'd at least have heard them in a pub quiz, right? So they're nothing to do with Lad Bible. I don't really know. They appear to be a couple. I don't know. Twitter's really angry with them. Why is Twitter angry with them? Sounds like they've done a nice thing. I mean, there is there is some stuff about Do They Know It's Christmas that probably would make it not the best song to do a cover of again, right? <sighs> but also, I mean... people seem to dislike them and, I don't know, look into it. All right, well, I, I will, Hannah. Thanks, yeah. thanks for the heads <laughs> Or, you know, don't, because <laughs> just live in the ignorant bliss that you and I have been living in for ages. Anyway, Jen, I want to talk about feminism. Okay, yep. So you're a feminist. I am. Do you fancy mm-hmm. having a crack at defining feminism for me? The advancement of women's rights in order to achieve parity with men. Seems about right. Yeah. Just to back you up, let's look at a couple of other sources. Okay. The Oxford English Dictionary says it is, quote, the advocacy of the rights of women based on the theory of equality of the sexes. And the Cambridge Dictionary, just because I can't let Oxford have something. Sure. The Cambridge (laughs) Dictionary calls it the belief that women should be allowed the same rights, power and opportunities as men and be treated in the same way. Yep. 
Now, obviously, anyone who's ever been on Twitter will be aware that feminists themselves don't have an agreed idea of how feminism should be done. Adherents of second, third, fourth, and however many waves we're at now tend to disagree about some, if not many, things. And it's also worth pointing out that many feminists, including those on this very podcast, believe that by getting rid of the patriarchy and enabling women to be and do whatever they like, some men will also benefit which is a good thing. If we stop defining certain roles, behaviour and indeed clothes as intrinsically masculine or feminine, any man who lives outside of the gender norms can do so without being told that he's not a real man. Sure. Great. The primary aim of feminism, to me at least, is women. But in the same way that the whole street benefits from not letting one house burn down, if everyone gets to share in the positive consequences, that's just a bonus. Anyway, Jen, why am I feeling the need to do a Feminism 101 explainer this week? I mean, you would have thought that our listeners would know. Well, it's because of a man, of course. A man named Volker Turk, who is the UN's new human rights crisis management. Well, this is going to go well. I think it will be fair to say he's undoubtedly started the job, which the New York Times described as one of the UN's most delicate roles, at a tough time. Iran, Afghanistan, China, Ukraine, Sudan, all among the countries in some state of crisis or another. But does that mean I'm going to cut him any slack for an appalling tweet he put out recently? Nope. (laughs) It might be worth saying that the UN, which has an array of counts, does not have the best Twitter presence full stop. It upset many women a few years ago when it tweeted a quote that described us as limitless and formless. (laughs) Ah, no thanks. And it clearly got the big book of sounding clever on Twitter a few years back for Christmas because it's keen to end tweets with flourishes like, that's it, that's the tweet, or filled them with clap emojis. But I think it might have excelled itself last week when Turk tweeted, quote, feminism is not only about women, It's about the universal values of equality, dignity and justice. Gender equality means a better world for everyone. To which I can only respond, no, it fucking isn't. Women, and feel free to have your own definition of who that includes. That is who feminism is for. Women deserve their own liberation movement. Everything else is humanism. And suggesting that it is feminism's job to solve the world's problems. That's exactly the shit feminism is there to combat. Oh dear, Volker. Man, I hate clap emojis in the middle of tweets. I really do. I don't even know what it's... Is it supposed to... Is it supposed to, like, emphasise... It's supposed to be used for emphasis. It's quite hard to do when you're talking, but anyway. Well, you did a good job. I'm into it. Yeah. I thank you. Fucking hell. That's... uh... Men's views on feminism, it's what the world's been waiting for. Well, Hannah, I know this isn't the good news section of the podcast, but I've got some news which I'd actually say I'm cautiously optimistic about. Would you like to hear it? Please. And please. It doesn't really work that way, does it? <laughs> it didn't. It just randomly clapped throughout this. You look like you're doing a polka. <laughs> I'd love to be in a polka. Anyway, that news is the government's announcement last week that sexual harassment on the street, that is catcalling, following someone, blocking their path, etc., will be made a specific offence punishable by up to two years in jail. 
Victims of street harassment are, of course, disproportionately women. A YouGov survey conducted in February of this year found that 62% of women had been catcalled or wolf-whistled at, compared to 8% of men. While 43% of women had experienced unwelcome touching or groping, compared to 15% of men. I'm actually surprised it's that high for men, but... um, Mm. Is it necessarily by... No, I guess guess it it doesn't actually... It doesn't specify, so I guess that could include men. Groping and harassing men. Speaking about the plans, Home Secretary Suella Braverman said every woman should feel safe to walk our streets, which is the first thing I've heard her say Uh that I unequivocally agree with. (laughs) That said, this has been in the works for a while. Nimco Ali, the government's independent advisor on violence against women and girls, spoke out earlier this year and suggested that this was being blocked by people in and around government who couldn't see the value in it as a preventative measure. By the way, I should say that just hours after the announcement last week, Ali said that she would step down from this role because she doesn't want to serve under Suella Braverman. Fair play. As yet, there has been no announcement as to whether or not that vacancy will be filled. And before we put down our placards and toddle off to the pub, safe in the knowledge that we've fixed the patriarchy now, I should also point out that this is kind of already an offence under general sexual harassment laws, with less than 1% of reported rapes in England and Wales leading to convictions. It's hard to imagine the nice toots brigade are going to be quaking in their boots over this. I don't really understand this, because firstly, how on earth are they going to enforce it? Yeah, I mean, it's completely unenforceable. And what Can you imagine going to a police station and being like, that guy there, who, by the way, is already like, you know half an hour down the road in his yeah. van or whatever shouted yeah. nice tits at me what yeah what, the police are not gonna they're gonna be like we, we got other stuff we've got other on. shit to do i mean you're not gonna get up to two years in prison for doing this no no you'd have to have a really really solid back catalogue of like other Exa- heinous exactly. crimes exactly it does seem a, a bit i don't know pointless pointless but also sort of i suppose Prison exists as a threat, so perhaps yes. it would cause some men to go, hey, I won't shout nice tits at that woman in the street. But in all honesty, I'm not entirely sure that I want people to go to prison for shouting nice tits in the street. I'd just like them to not shout nice tits in the street. Yeah, I mean, I see I see the point about it as a preventative measure and, and also just as a kind of like, hey, look, us as society, we're not, we're not putting up with this. Because it is bad and it does escalate and we know Absolutely. that. So I see value in doing that, but in terms of like how effective as a deterrent I think that will be when, as I said, we can all see all of the rapists doing the raping yeah. and nothing happening to them. Yeah. It's, I don't know, I'm a bit sceptical. Yeah, agreed. Do you want a bit of generally... Gem- Actual good news. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jen, because I, I couldn't work out what word I was going to say there. This week it comes from Northern Ireland, where the Supreme Court has decided to uphold the Northern Ireland Safe Access Zones Bill. This means that if you're seeking an abortion, you'll be free to do so without intimidation, harassment and unwanted attention from anti-choice organisations and people. You know, the ones that stand outside with pictures of horrible things that live only in their imagination and things about Jesus. I'm just going to hand this straight over to Naomi Connor, co-governor of Alliance for Choice Belfast. And she said, 
It is wrong entirely that any woman or worker should be forced to run the gauntlet of anti-choice harassment for accessing healthcare. For far too long, these behaviours have been ignored or treated as the other side of the debate. A woman's body does not become a debate simply because she has decided that she needs an abortion. Any person who avails of or healthcare professional who provides an abortion should be able to do so in an environment which is private, safe, dignified and free from interference. Today's decision is long overdue. Absolutely, Naomi. 100%. A lot of the pictures that they sort of hold up are not, like, they're just completely made up, aren't they? They bear absolutely no, like, biological resemblance. An actual full-term baby inside a a picture of a full-term baby inside a woman saying, this is what they look like at six weeks. (laughs) Anyway, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where with one hand we give us and with the other we say, we didn't like you anyway, James Dyson. <laughs> Does anyone? Does anyone? <laughs> maybe Mrs. Dyson? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Some more good news, Hannah. I know. The government announced last week that legislation will be brought forward to give all UK employees the right to ask for flexible working from day one in a job. Okay, it's not the same as the default promise to us in the Conservative Party's 2019 manifesto. That is that flexible working would be the default. Mm -hmm. But it is a significant improvement on the current right to request flexible working after 26 weeks in post, which is quite a long time. It's also not as good as requiring employers to list the types of flexible working available in job advertisements, something which a TUC survey previously uncovered would make 99% of working mothers more likely to apply for jobs. But it is nonetheless a good thing, right? 99%? Wow. Yeah, that's, that is a massive number, isn't it? Because who benefits from flexible working? Well, traditionally, more women than men request flexible working because traditionally, women are more likely to have caring responsibilities for children or other family members. But it's not for everyone, is it? Certainly not for Dyson, uh. <laughs> who says that the move will hamper employers' ability to organise their workforce as they judge fit in a competitive world and risk investment in the UK. We thought that was the EU. Mm. No? Fuck this shit and the, and I quote, superficial attractions for individuals, he says, in uh, flexible working, and the highly invidious two-tier workforce the government will be creating by implementing it. So he's worried, basically, that this will create... A group of people who can work flexibly and a group of people who can't work flexibly and that will create resentment betwixt the two. But what I would say is that two-tier is quite an interesting choice of words in this context, i.e. the context in which we recognise the value of more than just the one dominant section of society and look to implement systems which benefit more than just that group. There's so much wrong with his attitude on this. I don't think that being able to put my daughter to bed, for example, is a superficial attraction. (laughs) I imagine other people feel this way about making dinner for an elderly relative or taking their mum to a hospital appointment. And there's something almost Dickensian about this doctrine that private lives must be completely at odds with our work lives, not least because it's a doctrine that Jacob Rees-Mogg apparently (laughs) ascribes to. Yeah. And it's this doctrine that really does create a two-tier workforce, in my opinion. 
exactly that. Exactly that. It's it's kind of the same argument about that you you see rolled out when people talk about working from home, mm. because they'll say allowing some people to work from home is unfair for other people who can't work from home. Mm. But that works on the assumption that lots of people do actually want to work from home. And I've got friends who are still working at home who are desperate to get back in an office. Absolutely desperate. They hate working at home. So just because it's something that one person wants doesn't mean you can't give it to them because everybody else will want it because not everybody wants the same thing. And I do. I think it's worth pointing out as well as we have on the podcast before you know there are disadvantages to working from home like Mm -hmm. having that face-to-face time with people like you know getting in front of the right people having those water cooler moments etc etc they are useful in the advancement of some people's careers so I don't I don't think it's like you know a silver bullet that suddenly solves everything for everyone but like for fuck's sake it's just about choice isn't it and it's just about recognizing that people need different things Hmm. yeah i don't understand what could be wrong with that dyson is just such a such a just such a stinking bellend yeah absolutely (laughs) it's just not even just a bellend like a dirty (laughs) bellend Should we leave it there? <laughs> I think that's probably <laughs> enough, don't you? Liz Buckley, please pick up your phone. I'm on the request line. <laughs> She's here. Let her go to voicemail. <laughs> I am joined I'm at my kitchen table by our music guru. No pressure, Liz. <laughs> Liz Buckley, hello. Hello. So that slightly odd intro is because this time we're talking about a rap icon with a brain full of fireworks, a big old donkey, and very little sympathy for premature ejaculation. <laughs> Missy Elliott. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Did you just say hello? Hello. <laughs> no regrets at all. Loving it. But why are we talking about Missy Elliott? Okay, so this year is 25 years since her debut, Super Duper Fly. And 20 years since under construction, so she's got a couple of anniversaries, which I thought was a very good excuse. Talk me and the listeners through Super Duper Flying, which was her debut album, right? It was her debut album, so she recorded it in two weeks because she was already so much of a name that the demand was there. Wowzers. She, uh, so her and Timberland were sort of production hotshots and everybody was working with them. And she put it best, actually. She said, I did this album for my fans not to make money because I was already making money. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, she was already iconic, which is incredible when you release your debut album. Mm-hmm. They were the sort of production dream team, but they were, they were such big news that Warner basically let Missy have her own label and sign her own bands and just go straight in. And that was Goldmine. That was... Uh, and actually the promo behind it was amazing there was no US singles you had to buy the album oh clever she is canny though she is very canny but also you know everyone wanted the album because she is that good but yeah they were so sort of already famous that there, uh, I don't know if you know there's a Missy appeared on a Gina Thompson track The Things That You Do which is a very sort of smooth R&B song and her guest spot was such hot property and so unusual. It was really a tension grabbing. She refers to that little sort of like rap guest spot throughout her career because it was absolutely iconic. So you'll find like there's a sort of hee-haw that she does and she mentions that in loads and loads of lyrics. And people just know that she means that and they're like, oh yeah, we know. It's sort of like an in-crowd thing. Is but it like, telling that I don't know who Gina Thompson is, but I know who Missy Elliott is, obviously? 
Oh. Or is that more reflective of me? <laughs> Poor Gina. No, just feel sorry for Gina. Well, I mean, there's always a way into anything, isn't there? I mean, it's like the rain is and Peebles, I can't stand the rain. And, you know, um, Delphonics, Ready or Not, Here I Come. Like, people learn R&B classics through sampling. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, you know, whichever which way you find these things. And, you know, it's always a shock when you realise it's the other way around. Like, oh, that wasn't her. But, like, I think the beauty of Missy is that she would play with sort of time signatures and rhythm and stuff and make it her own. So even things that didn't originally sound like that, she'll twist it and reverse it. Hey! And her influences are eclectic and imaginative and they're also without snobbery or boundaries. So like on Super Duper Fly, there's Pass the Blunt, which is based on Passes of Dutch Eva Musical Youth. I love that song. And By Our Style, that samples Morning Glory by Jamiroquai. I mean, she's all over the place, really. So like, and, you know, God bless her for not being snobby in a way that I am. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I think her only UK number one single is her working with Mel B. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and she's worked with Little Mix and all sorts of stuff. So, like, she she's absolutely without boundary in terms of sort of, these are my people, this is my crowd. She's just interested in music and her samples are quite eclectic. Like, Work It, is, it's got Run DMC and the other main sample is Blondie's Heart of Glass, which you wouldn't necessarily think would be on a rap mm. track. I think that fits really well with her videos as well. And, you know, that very sort of sexualized, pouting, winking stuff that Debbie Harry does. You know, Missy, it will be very exaggerated. You know, the sort of eye will pop out towards you and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so I love the fact that there's Blondie in the mix as well, because she absolutely, these are the building bricks of everything that she's doing. Mm -hmm. And it comes from everywhere. You mentioned The Rain, which mm. was the first single off Super Duper Fly. I've got to say, my favourite song off Super Superfly is Sock It To Me. Oh, yeah. Like that, which is <laughs> But I, I can't not think about the rain and just, I think it became iconic, those incredible aerated bimbag scenes. <laughs> She's just full of mischief, I think. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Well, her sense of humour is amazing, really. On a very early sample before she was famous, she lip-synced to a track, so she's the backing vocals on a track. But the record company told her that she was too large to be in the video. So she wasn't in the video even though it was her voice. And from that point, she decided that she was going to be in charge of her own image. And so that was very fundamental in her record label, that her image was her own intellectual property, which is why we get the videos that we do. I mean, what's brilliant about... The Rain in particular, I suppose, is that, you know, she's being asked by the record companies all over the place. I mean, she, there was a literal battle over who to sign her, even though she ended up with her own label. But rather than slim down for the camera, what she's done is she dons an inflatable trash bag. <laughs> <laughs> We've all got one. And she blows herself up and she does the complete opposite. There's a brilliant outtake of the video shoot where they take her to a gas station and pump her up with air by the pumps. <laughs> And also it's become a thing, you know, people do it at Halloween, you get dads like doing it and picking their daughters up from school in trash bags and stuff, and uh, Missy will retweet it on Twitter. We're talking 1997, this is a huge amount of time before Bootalicious, you know, this is really unusual stuff. Many female R&B stars, you feel anatomically familiar with them, yeah. but Missy, you know, she's an in inflated spherical. <laughs> in a gold cycling helmet, you know. She's a mystery wrapped in a bin bag. <laughs> but that's not to say she judges others either, you know, if, if women have got their asses out, like, you know, she's best mates with little Kim, for instance. 
it's never knowingly trousered. But she's almost always covered from head to foot. In the Work It video, actually, which is on uh, under construction, she says, ain't no shame, lady, just do your thing. Just make sure you're ahead of the game. And she's saying that to a couple of pole dancers while she's wearing a tracksuit with a beret. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> she turns hip-hop's standard narrative of sexual power, male sexual power, and that limited notion of feminine beauty you were just talking about, and she just turns it topsy-turvy. Yeah. I feel like Missy was body positivity before mm. it got so popular, mm, and indeed po-faced. Yeah, yeah. She's having fun with it. Yeah, totally. She's got very unconventional creativity as well. I mean, she cleared a path for so many women, but also male artists. I absolutely love that you would not have Eminem if it wasn't for Missy Elliott. You know, that sort of cartoonish, playing with voices, playing with image the sort of silliness of it, you know, telling stories. He would not exist with her. And I love that a woman can go, there you are, love. <laughs> totally. And <laughs> that was, it for you. That was my backwards route to Missy Elliott. I really liked Eminem. And my mate Tina went, hang on. <laughs> this is who you need to fall in love with. Yeah. And she was right, as as mostly she is. Yeah, and artificiality becomes far cooler than authenticity, which is so unusual for the time, you know. Like, this is... A world away from sort of, I don't know, Springsteen or something. It's not jeans and grease. It's a dream landscape. It's sort of, the videos are a digital revolution in the same way that the music is. It's completely wild and out there. You know, like she lives for the fisheye camera. She does. I've just got my note just says music videos, cheese dreams. And I, <laughs> I think that, that pretty much sums it up. But there's so much invention and creativity and brilliant nonsense in there. Yeah, um, and also like the, the the sort of nonsense becomes a beat. I really like that. Like the visuals are an instrument in themselves. Mm. So like you know when there's a wink or her head will come off on a stalk, it's on the beat. Mike Williams did most of her early videos, and he did Buster Rhymes and stuff as well. And like completely in tandem with one another. And uh, you know she's uh, she knows what her worth is, and her worth is far sexier than a swimsuit. <laughs> Definitely. And I think that cheese dream team of Pipe Williams, Dave Mayers, and of course, Missy having all the dreams. It's just, it's still fresh now watching videos mm. from 20 years ago. Yeah. And also the other way around as well. Like, get your freak on, I think, where they've got static photos of dancers and it sort of goes from one photo to the next. And it's almost sort of like, you know, the early days of cinema where you've kind of got flick book kind of pictures. But the whole point is you've got the jerkiness of the rhythm. So it's not film of people dancing. It's sort of like one photo over another. And it sort of gets that sort of like not dancing normally. Like she'll often be on wires or climbing up a wall. Mm. Or, mm. It's all about movement not being expected. And samples are often at different speeds to what you'd expect. It's a whole new rhythm. And that's visually as well as musically as well, which is what works so well. Sometimes she can be very literal as well. You know, I like that Super Duper Fly has an actual fly on it. <laughs> Get your freak on, you know. She's being freaky in every sense. She's being a zombie. And, you know, it's, it's building blocks of thriller, I suppose. But also, like, she's actually trying to spook you. She spits and then a man eats it. Yeah. It flies out her mouth. Yeah. And <laughs> she's deliberately not being sexy, which for rap is, you know, freaky. <laughs> and yet she is really sexy because she is a woman in control of herself. I do feel like there are two main focus points for Missy Elliott lyrics, and that is Missy Elliott being the best and Missy <laughs> Elliott getting it on. Yeah, I mean, like, she's she's brashly sexual in a brilliant, brilliant way. So, like, you know, um, 
sock it to me. When I, I used to work in an R&B record shop when I was younger and I was obsessed with sock it to me when it came out because it was so unusual and I was, all I was doing was selling R&B. telling. <laughs> but it's all about her sex drive. You know, the lyrics are pure filth in a brilliant way. You know, like, my hormones jumping like a disco. I was looking for affection so I decided to go swing your dick in my direction. I'll be out of control. You know, like, it's brilliantly funny there's a tinder profile (laughs) (laughs) and all the while she's dressed as a red lego character battling robots from outer space you know she's (laughs) an incredible video (laughs) Uh, you know she's not going to be limited by uh (laughs) just getting it on there's a lot more going on than that and work it you know it's explicitly sexual the vocals are ridiculous i mean what do yeah. you think the elephant noise means, Liz? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and also, like, go downtown and eat me like a vulture. I mean, Jesus Christ. And then oh, a whoop with the elephant. Beaky. <laughs> but it's so funny as well. I lost a few pounds in my waist for you. Don't I look like a Halle Belly poster? You know, and in the video, there's a man looking through for the bottom of a glass. Uh-huh. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, she's fantastic. I like the song Shake Your Pom-Poms, which is actually, I don't know what it means. What could it mean, Missy? What could it mean? But it's from Step Up to The Streets. I don't know if you remember that film, Liz. And I think that's why it got lost. But it's an absolute banger, the way she messes with breaks and beats, and it's a lot faster than a lot of her stuff. But she's just constantly surprising, I think. Yes, she is. And, you know, to this day, you know, like... I've- she actually, it was today, so this won't date the podcast too much, I hope, but today there was a list of the highest selling digital female rappers of this year. Obviously, you've got Cardi B, Nicki Minaj, uh, Megan Thee Stallion, Doja Cat, Missy Elliott. She's not of this generation and she is top 10 digital selling artists. And the other four would not exist if it wasn't oh, for totally, her. Totally, totally. Um, there's a gorgeous clip actually. Uh, I know we were, t- we were talking, sorry, you guys weren't included. <laughs> 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 we were talking earlier about her MTV Vanguard Award, which is gorgeous and makes me cry, and it's oh, brilliant. Yeah, look, you can only, I only found it on, like, there's a Facebook video of it these days, it seems to have been Yeah, MTV Asia, channels. everybody, get on it. I yeah, couldn't find it anywhere else. It's, but it's so good. She does six songs in seven Oh, minutes. my God. It, honestly, it makes me weep. It's fucking incredible. But, like, um, she, her acceptance speech of the award is also amazing. I absolutely love it. But it's like, she begins with, I love you, mommy. <laughs> adorable but like you just reminded me because Cardi B gave her the award and at the end she's like thanks sis and Cardi B looks like oh god I'm gonna cry (laughs) oh sis sis." but also like the people she thanks she remembers to thank Aaliyah who is her best friend obviously died many many years ago tragically but like she's still Mm -hmm. like Aaliyah I love you I miss you Buster Rhymes you know like she thanks the people who are dear to her which is gorgeous but the main person or people that she thanks is the dance community and she's like I'd be nothing without the dance community I bring the beat you bring the heart and all the dancers behind her start crying it's gorgeous and you're like you know she just cares so much about the bigger world that's behind her and Missy you think more than anything in the world is collaborative the amount of people that she's worked with is insane and the list is just so eclectic it's all over the place and it's relentless and actually, you know, Missy has health problems. It's part of the reason that she's not been... She's got Graves' disease. Yeah, she? yeah. And, you know, so she's sort of not been present necessarily in the same way we might expect. She did have her EP in 2019, but, like, she was a long time not on the scene. And 
she was obviously still working behind the scenes and she's in the Dan Rouge soundtrack and all sorts of things like you know but she's so supportive of other people you know um, I love in that video as well so one of the dancers there's a bit where there's just a dancer a female dancer in a yellow tracksuit called Alison on the stage and that is the little girl from earlier videos all grown up yeah. and that's it she collaborates with so many people but she remembers them all no matter where they come in the pecking order yeah absolutely yes very very supportive woman and like you will never find anyone that doesn't like missy elliott you know from any walk of life or any type of scene or you know like everybody loves missy i think that her super bowl performance is like one of the most watched things of all time you know <laughs> it was the one she did with katie perry in mm. like 2015 or something wasn't mm. it yeah it was like 118 million just in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's huge. And if she anyone's worried loved. about how that works, by the way, it's worth pointing out that only translated into 71,000 sales, which made me go, oh, yeah. Just if anyone's ever like, oh, my book doesn't sell or my record Fuck doesn't streaming. sell. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone is listening and still thinking, why should I get into Missy Elliott? What would you say? <laughs> Pricks. <laughs> we'll kick them and call them next. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Missy is so loved that someone wanted to erect a statue to her, isn't it? Uh, to replace a confederate statue yeah, as well. well. Petition's still in. The two swords waxwork. She's got a Hollywood Walk of Fame star. She's got her songwriter's Hall of Fame. You know, one of my favourite things about Missy, when I was looking into what she's done, if you look at her filmography or her TV career, in almost every single thing she's ever done, she's herself. And I love that when you look down and you're like, she's in this, she's in this, she's in this. What was she? She was Missy Elliott. Hashtag be authentic. Oh, it's brilliant. So she's in the film Honey, she's herself. She's in the sitcom Eve with her friend Eve. Eve is Eve. Missy Elliott is Missy Elliott. Why would you be a character if you are Missy? And she's that iconic that people just go, oh, look, there's Missy Elliott. She's fun. She's powerful. She's supportive. She's challenging. She's so fucking likeable. And she blows herself up like a balloon. Why would she not like her? Holla! <laughs> you play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I am sitting in an actual room doing an interview. This is very rare for me these days, this yeah. little Zoom, with Shauna Brown. Prop for England and Harlequins. Harlequins. Always find that really hard to say. Harlequins rugby team. Yeah. Hello, Shauna. Hello. You, you can just go Quins, isn't it? Yeah. Or you say, come on, you Quins, but Harlequins as well. I know you are the Quins, like I'm aware of that, but yeah. I just thought, you know, do it properly. Harlequins. Harlequins, do it properly. <laughs> so, Shauna, I would like to talk to you first of all about how it has been quite a crazy few years for you hasn't it because because obviously we're seeing like very rapid kind of professionalization of all sorts of women's sports and rugby is no exception so you were previously working at British Gas and as a firefighter yeah. in Kent which is good to know yeah. I felt very safe <laughs> plugging this equipment in thinking you know if anything goes wrong uh, I'll show you where the fire exit is if yeah I don't know goes. what I was expecting you to do an electrical fire maybe I don't know you went on to be named as one of the Evening Standard's most influential Londoners mm. in 2019. I mean, that's it's a bit of a turnaround, isn't it? it like, pretty cool. <laughs> how was that? Uh, when I found out about it, I was like, wow, I didn't even know it was a thing. That's cool. Uh, what, what do I do now? Well, but if anything, it just spurs me on to, to keep going with 
how I talk about things, how I address issues, how I try and raise issues, how I try and make it better for everyone else and, yeah, to be officially recognised as an influencer. Sometimes it's a bit cringe, actually, because now, you know, it's a job title and stuff and people are an influencer by profession, which I am categorically not. Like, I'm a rugby player who happens to just speak the truth sometimes. But, yeah, it's pretty cool to just say I'm one of London's most influential people. What's that, 10 million, 12 million in London these days? Quite a lot. It's, yeah, yeah, it's more than just me and my mum, so that's pretty cool. So are you on now, or have you sort of officially moved on from your sabbatical? Because you went on a sabbatical in 2020, didn't you? Yeah, so officially I'm still on sabbatical from the fire service, mm-hmm. um, and I've got about another year left in that to make the decision as to whether I want to go back and if I did go back it would be starting from the beginning again but you know I'd, I've been up for a few years mm-hmm. so I'd have to go on my recruit course again and, and do another three months of training but in terms of professional rugby and the decisions off pitch as well it's a good safety net to have so I could I could break my back in the game on Sunday Saturday mm. um, I probably wouldn't make a good firefighter actually if I broke my back that's probably a bad example but ultimately <laughs> something really bad could happen yeah. in a game of rugby and it could all go away overnight it could all be lost my ability to play rugby could be lost overnight mm. and there's a lot of people men and women I'd say mm. men are particularly guilty they don't have anything else to go to in terms of profession and how to earn a living and, and have a career but where I've you know on sabbatical from the fire service but I've also done other things and even things like I've sat in job interviews before mm. I've got a CV um, there's always something else to, to look forward to but yeah officially on sabbatical in the fire service for another year. But as a female athlete it historically has been so much more important to have those things right because the money that you earn in your career yeah if any at all is nowhere near yeah so I've come from sport in general as a a female particularly in athletics where you you just don't earn money it's you pay money in terms of fuel competition fees Mm. like your kit you buy it all yourself and so many people ask like why did you do it and you can't really explain it only people who have a passion whether it's sport or not if you have a passion then you realise you just do things because that is your passion and you want to do it. It's not about making money. But yeah, women, I would say, are a lot better, even like at this moment in time, women are in a lot better place because we've come from careers and some people are still doing their careers, especially alongside club rugby. Mm -hmm. So there's only 28 women in in England who are paid to have professional contracts. Everyone else is, is just making it work somehow. So whether they're students and training sort of during the day or like, getting to lectures either late or just moulding their student life around rugby training or maybe they've got jobs in the fire service so Jade Conkle Roberts is also a firefighter mm. and shift work and you just kind of mould things around your sport so at the moment we're, we're making it work but ultimately it's to our advantage because you're keeping up a career so when you do hang up your boots you've got somewhere to go whereas in the men's game it's, it's like completely the opposite and I know a lot of them are scared to, to go scared to think of the end scared to think of well my playing career is only a certain amount of time and they have no idea what life is like outside Mm. of rugby which in itself is pretty sad um but yeah that's where the women's game definitely has an advantage because of you know not necessarily the right reasons i.e we've had to Mm. and there's not previously been the choice where you could be a full-time female and even now as as full-time females in sport like you say you're not necessarily paid a wage that you can live on or paid a wage that you can live comfortably on you still have to earn a living elsewhere Mm. and whatever that is whether it's 
going to a conventional job or you make in a bit of extra by coaching, by guest speaking, um, doing commercial appearances. You just make the money where you can so you can play rugby either for your club, your country or whatever sport it is that you're doing. Do you feel like you bring other things to your game through having like outside interests and professions and stuff? Yeah. There must be skills that you learn in, in your other work that you bring into the game, right? Yeah, 100%. And I'm always of the philosophy, if you produce, nurture, keep good people and make good people great, you're automatically going to have better rugby players. Like, I'm convinced you could do like a month's worth of just people training and working on your people skills and learning how to talk to people, learning how to communicate differently to different people and learning your discipline that comes along with it the commitment you have to have in sport. If you just produce great humans who think about other people in their day-to-day lives, then you're going to have a better rugby player at the end of it. Like Rugby is, is, is just a game. You can, anyone can teach anyone how to play rugby. The real challenge is, is creating great people to, to make the better rugby players. And yeah, for me, I would always want to do something else alongside playing because that's that's me. That's how I operate. That's how my brain works. I need something else. And mm. as much, especially when I was full-time working in the fire service and playing for England, as much as, you know, I might have a bad training session, I might have a bad game, I might have dropped a few balls and it might have gone wrong in a few scrums, missed a few tackles, but actually I can't mope on that for too long because I've got to go to work and there's potential I'm going to be the last person someone talks to in a very bad day in their life, i.e. they're in a car accident and I'm the last person that they're speaking to, that person, he or she in that car doesn't care that I've dropped three balls in training Mm. or that I've missed a few tackles. What they care about is I'm here to do my job in that moment in time and and make that as comfortable for them as possible. So it's putting things into perspective as well. And For me, if you only have rugby, that then gives you everything but also takes everything away from you Mm. if you only have rugby it it means you're happy when you win or you're happy when you have a good game or you're happy when you're selected in a team but reversely if you don't have a good game if you don't win if you're not selected you're you're sad and you're letting somebody else have that control over you because there's a lot of uncontrollables in a team sport Mm. that is ultimately officiated by another human who does make mistakes and Mm. For me, why would you want to give someone else that much power over you and your emotions and feelings? And sometimes it does take a trigger point. For me, it was not being picked for England during the Autumn Internationals last year. And I realised how much happiness I was getting from playing because I then wasn't playing. And I was like, oh, this is quite sad. I need to not rely on this for my happiness. And I've always had other things going on. But it was that moment in time, it was the first time I'd been fit and not been selected to play. Um, And yeah, so just taking that power back onto me, really, rather than giving it to somebody else, letting somebody else decide whether I'm good enough, Mm. when actually, I know I'm good enough, it's just, you know, you're potentially not the flavour of the month, that particular coach might not be, like, the kind of coach you work best with, that particular coach might not like your style of play, but all it takes is for a change in personnel, and all of a sudden you're the best thing since sliced bread. So it's just not letting other people take control of you and your emotions and your happiness so i wanted to talk about the world cup a little bit because you've just come back from the world cup uh you started the tournament you were injured weren't you so you Uh, no so i had covid was was the first issue yeah yeah and then obviously you you managed to get some games and it did unfortunately end in heartbreak how was that what was that experience such a strange feeling like when the final whistle had gone i was just like oh 
that's it. Like I felt empty. I, I didn't didn't feel sad. Obviously didn't feel happy. I just felt empty and I was like, Oh. So we've been grinding for the last however many years, spewing our guts out for months on the training pitch since July. And that that's it. That it's all over. <laughs> this wasn't the outcome that we wanted. And part of me thought, well, it was all for nothing. And, that, and you know, that's in reflection in that moment. You think, oh, it's all for nothing. But as an adult, you come back, you come away, you reflect on things, and you realise how, how much good it, it has done anyway. But, yeah, in, in the moment when that whistle had gone, it was just like, oh, that, well, that, that's it, then we'll just go home, shall we? <laughs> yeah, it's so strange. There was a lot of buzz about the tournament this year. I I felt like more so than there has been previously. I think where you guys will have suffered a little bit is that it was in New Zealand, so on New Zealand time, which is a real shame in terms of like capitalising on that interest. But I did feel like there was a real buzz around it. You know, people were really speaking really positively about it. Do you think it's had a big impact on, you know, the the visibility of the women's game? Yeah, I think it's always important to remember how far generally women's sport has come in the five years since the last World Cup. So sometimes comparing it to the previous World Cup is is almost null and void because we're in a whole Mm. whole different place and and the bar generally is a lot higher anyway. Um, But then when you think of the sea change, for me, during the World Cup, it didn't feel as special as I thought it would, like playing in my first World Cup, an mm. international tournament, like playing countries that we've never played before because we spend a lot of time playing, you know, the Six Nations countries. Um, and there was nothing particularly special about it. It just felt like more rugby, which is fine because, it, you know, for me, it keeps pressure levels down. It's just rugby. But m- maybe because I've been to a Commonwealth Games as a, as a hammer thrower, I had a standard in my head and how special that was. And that's one of the best things I've ever done in my life as a Commonwealth mm. Games and the experience in and around the game, not just actually competing. So I don't know what I was expecting from the World Cup, but it, it seemed more. And things like, you think of New Zealand as, as, as rugby land, rugby world, rugby country, and actually having empty stadiums, walking out to empty stadiums, especially in the pool stages, it was a bit disheartening. You think, oh, there's only a couple of hundred people here and we're at a World Cup. Um, but... New, the New Zealand games were packed out and you can understand that because it's their home nation um, but it would have just been a bit nicer to see more people at more games and play at different stadiums so the whole tournament was played within three stadiums oh, wow. and for us as an England team we was out there for seven weeks and we stayed in Auckland for six of those seven weeks um, and, and New Zealand is, is a beautiful country there's so much different types of areas to play in and so many rugby stadiums and you know so many different local areas we could go to but, yeah, we, we, we played in the same three stadiums, um, which was a bit of a downer for me, in all honesty. But in saying that, coming home, and like you say, the matches were sometimes at silly o'clock in the morning, but realising how many people watched it, like the amount of conversations, I could never have dreamt of the amount of people I've spoken to. I said, yeah, of course we got up to watch it, like set the alarms. Um, some of the guys that I, I coach with at my local club was like, yeah, I was late to work, and I told them I'm watching the women's game, and said, I can't leave. I said, oh, okay kept trying to leave to go because I knew I was going to be late but there was something changing every couple of minutes and he just said I couldn't I couldn't leave the TV and so yeah I think those little anecdotes of of being home when I got home is reminder that as much as we were quite far removed geographically and and time zone wise there was still what seems like a big buzz here in in our homeland. Was the World Cup delayed by Covid? Was it supposed to be a year? Yeah a year. Right so I think my feeling is that sort of similar kind of thing maybe to what happened with 
the women's Euro because obviously the final was at Wembley, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But some of the stadia used in that were like weird Sport choices. As well. yeah. Like Brentford Community Stadium, yeah. you know, massive respect to Brentford, but it's a small state. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So the capacities were quite small. But I think that these are decisions that were taken, you know, probably like four or five years ago something like that and and as you say like the rapidity of change yeah. in the game is like it's crazy right so do, do, did you feel like maybe you suffered from that a bit or that it was perhaps the women's world cup was maybe a little bit of an afterthought in terms of like how it would have been with a men's world cup in uh, new zealand i think we we always i think we generally feel like an afterthought as i'd say women in sport but i, I could speak for rugby and you're always being compared to the men's game. And we compare ourselves to the men's game sometimes and we talk about standards and well, how are the boys being treated and maybe we should get that sort of treatment when it's like high-end stuff. But in terms of an afterthought, for me, it gives you an extra year to plan. If it's been delayed by a year, it gives you an extra year to plan. Mm. I guess one of the things that we that necessarily consider in this country is that New Zealand had only just come out of... Well, they're not just come out of lockdown, but they've only just opened their borders again. Mm. So... There'd have been a lot of new things for them, including welcoming people from elsewhere, uh, even in terms of like, what flights are available. When we talk about friends and family who have, who flew over there and how many weren't available compared to what was sort of uh, the year before in terms of preparation for it. But no, I, I don't. I think you're being a bit kinder to them <laughs> in saying it's because of COVID because it's actually an easy excuse. And for me, it's just an extra year to plan, if anything. So. You are about to play, if we look at the, the domestic league a little bit, you're playing for the Quins, I'm going to say I'm going to say that now, rather than the Harlequins, and you are coming up to one of the biggest fixtures of the domestic club calendar, the Big Game 14, on December the 27th. That's an all-day event, which includes, obviously, the main event is the Quins versus the Bristol Bears. Can you explain to me why that is such a big fixture I can't give you the Harlequins history, but in terms of when I've been playing, they've always had, the men have had a club game once a year, like a league game at Big Twickenham. We call it Stupid Little Twickenham, which is maybe about 15,000 capacity. Mm-hmm. And then Big, Big Twickenham is 82,000. So once a year for 14 years. So the number, Big Game 14, relates to how many years it's okay, been happening. Yeah. Um, yeah, so once a year they've played over there and it's a massive sellout. It's the post-Christmas game. Mm-hmm. It's like the family occasion, the fun fair, the music, the rides, the face painting, and the bounce castles, all of that stuff. And I think it's about three years ago we had our first sort of introduction as a women's team. So our first game was against Leinster, which was a friendly mm-hmm. against them. And we played after the men on that day, which was freezing cold late at night it was dark it was horrible I was like oh I don't want to do this again it was pretty cool playing at Twickenham but not sure and then the following the following year we played against Wasps there and we played before the men and it was sold as a men's and women's game which it was um but there's always a place to grow and, and what makes big games special is it gets us as a club women's team number one playing in Twickenham mm-hmm. which is a special occasion for itself anyone involved in rugby wants to play in Twickenham so for club athletes to be able to do that is special in itself but then it's the, the family occasion you're adding a women's team in so now you're adding your different type of audience because sometimes you do have different types of audiences as you do with football mm-hmm. women's game versus men's game two very different types of audiences um, but yeah it's just a 
generally big club day and it, and it genuinely is a club day now as opposed to the men's team and the women's team might be playing before or after etc but even the fact that we played before I, I prefer it for the women to play before because we then get to sit and watch the men play as well and it adds in for us and our families mm. so our families will come and watch and it's then a day out for us as well and so yeah it's just around making it making a big deal of having an all-round club day and this year is the first time so the men are playing against Bristol and we're also playing against Bristol so it's genuinely a big club day for for both teams which mm. Bristol Bears are doing well in themselves and what they're doing for their players and the standards that they brought in this year and last year even like just pushing the bar on what women what is available to women what resources what facilities what coaches etc so yeah it's good to be against another big club who backs their women us at Quinns we back our women but Bristol Bears do as well so it'll be a generally all-round good day for rugby and you're hoping to get I believe a record attendance for a domestic club match so basically what you need is for lots and lots of people to buy tickets yeah. and to actually stay and watch the women's... Well, come early. Well, come so, early. Yeah, come we're, early. we're there first. So when it's a bit warmer as yeah, well. Yeah. So you can actually come, watch us, and if you don't fancy being cold, you can go home again and maybe watch your men on TV if you fancy it. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm sure that's not a club line, but it's my line. <laughs> I, I want people to come and watch us and see what a different product we've got because we, we do have a different product to the men than actually getting people to watch us who don't normally watch women play will realise that we do offer something different. We kick the ball less, because everyone's always moaning about that in the men's game. Mm. We run the ball more. Again, everyone's always moaning that the men just crash into each other. And it's just, just a lot more interesting. We're a lot more approachable. We're a lot nicer as women, I think. Do you, do you, do you sign, sign stuff for the kids yeah, at the yeah, end and me, all of that? For me, don't tell anyone, but that's my <laughs> favourite part of the day. Just Aww. going around, getting selfies, having a little chat with fans. And especially, you get used to the ones who come regular and then you get to know their name. And they're like, oh my gosh, how do you know me? It's like, well, you've been here six weeks in a row. I'm going to know your name by now. We've had Aww. a picture every time. But, you know, yeah. We're, I, I think as a women's sport... Because even at England, we push it as well to make an effort to go around after games and, and talk to fans, sign, like get pictures and literally just say thank you for coming. Like, thank you for, for wanting to be here because without you, this doesn't happen. Do you think there's more kind of like pressure for women, female athletes in general, not just in rugby, to kind of do that whole like meet and greet, whatever? I know like male athletes do it as well, mm -hmm. but there's always this thing in football about like, oh, you know, because they go and they like yeah. do this afterwards, blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like... I know you said that you love it and that's great. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is, is personnel dependent. Yeah. So knowing your players, knowing who likes to do it, knowing who doesn't like to do it. Because if you get someone who doesn't want to do it, doing it, you're not going to get the best result. But even things like interviews and mm. like me personally, when people talk to me about post-match analysis, like that's not my bag. Mm. I just, I, I can play rugby. I find it hard to talk about it. I'd rather talk about this other stuff that we've, we've gone through already mm. Um, but then other people would prefer to talk about performance side, would prefer to talk about statistics and all, all that good stuff. So it's just knowing your players. And, mm. I, and I think, in short, yes, there is a, um, a pressure on women to do more because it's almost like we're, selling, we're having to sell ourselves, whereas the men, some would say that they speak for themselves and don't need to necessarily go out there and do, whereas mm. we want to put ourselves out there. Um, and sometimes the way to do it is to be a personality which, again, for me comes easy. That's what I want to do. That's what I enjoy. But it's just recognising your mm. players and who doesn't. Some people just categorically don't want to put themselves out there about anything other than being a rugby player, which is absolutely fine. It's just about 
you know, people knowing their players and where to put them in what situation. You know, if you were a boring old feminist like me, you might say, oh, women being expected to go and do the kind of, like, unpaid emotional labour. Oh, unpaid like, is a whole different category. Yeah. We can get into that if you want. I've done, <laughs> yeah, I try to avoid unpaid these days. They say, oh, yeah, it's for your own um, self-promotion. I go, no, no thanks. Find someone else. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film set in Tory Britain... Sorry. <laughs> which film set in Dickensian in London did we watch this week? This week, it's time to play the Christmas music. It's time to light the Christmas lights. It's uh. time to meet the Christmas Muppets as the Muppet Christmas Carol turns 30. And while I'm shaking my fist at the rapidity of time, this slice of movie magic is actually a mere whippersnapper when you consider that Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, the novella on which it's based, obs, turns 149 on December the 19th. Wow. There is no dry powder this week, only the wet powder of freshly fallen snow, which started <laughs> just as I watched what is the perfect Christmas film for the 87 millionth time. Yep, yeah, me too. I was like, this is fully magic. <laughs> the directorial debut of Brian Henson following the death of his dad and Muppet god Jim in 1990, with a screenplay from longtime Muppets writer Jerry Jewell and songs by Paul Williams, The Muppet Christmas Carol marked a new chapter in The Muppet's story. A rebirth of sorts, if you will, just like Ebenezer Scrooge's. And what perfect casting! Michael Caine is Victorian literature's most miserable old bastard. <laughs> Caine plays it arrastrate alongside his felt and fur fellow actors. He is incredible as Scrooge, mm -hmm. capturing his conversion from mean and miserly git to full-on Mr. Christmas with charm and wonder and singing. Michael Caine, singing. Yep. The first time I witnessed him bursting into song, I couldn't stop laughing. But now I find <laughs> it truly heartwarming. Kane, who feels straight out of Dickens, is more than ably met by Kermit the Frog's Bob Cratchit, Miss Piggy's Emily Cratchit, the great Gonzo's Charles Dickens, Rizzo the Rat's Greek Chorus, Waldorf and Statler's Marley and Marley, and a joyful, multicoloured plethora of other Muppet creatures great and small, all straight out of Henson's Creature Shop, obviously, and all brought to life by the pitch-perfect voice work of Dave Goles, Frank Oz, Steve Whitmire and Jerry Nelson. The Muppet Christmas Carol was only a minor success upon its release on the 11th of December 1992, grossing $27.2 million from a $12 million budget. It received reviews that veered from meh to positive, with Williams' songs earning either displeasure or special praise. Just a note, my DVD of this film is pre the reinsertion of Scrooge and Bella's breakup ballad When Love Is Gone, I'm kind of okay with that, to be honest with you. But it is mm -hmm. worth saying that Kane is particularly brilliant in that scene, capturing the anguish of a mistake that cannot be rectified. Anyway, modest success on release, as I say, and faced fierce box office competition from Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and Disney's Aladdin. But hello VHS DVD and the British audience, which Henson credits with building the film's legacy, saying... The following year after its release, when it was sold on videotape... Videotape, Hannah. Oh. <laughs> so many people watched it in the UK. It broke all sorts of records. It was a small screen hit. It was the British that really forced the reintroduction of the film to the American market. And now, every year, audiences just get bigger and bigger. 
It's easy to forget we occasionally get anything right, but we Brits absolutely nailed it this time. Yeah. So, Hannah, I would usually ask at this point, have you seen it before? But you've totally seen this before, right? Oh, my God, loads of times. When I saw that this was having an anniversary, I thought, oh, that's going to be amazing to do. And then I very magnanimously thought, now I'm going to send Mickey a note to say the Muppet Christmas Carol is having an anniversary because I think I would struggle to articulate how just how glorious it is <laughs> in a sensible fashion i would just say the muppets christmas carol rated and that will be the end of it it was tricky yeah, not many to just do many that. many times <laughs> when mm. did you first see it because we've both got yeah, brothers it's... that are 11 years younger than us so i watched it first with yeah, aaron well, see, see i think that is part of to answer this in a in a slightly longer fashion i think that's part of the joy of the muppets for me is i had I have different memories of it. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. obviously my sister and I loved it when we were little. And then I have a much younger brother who I used to be left looking after yep, quite a lot. Same. When my mum used to go to work. And I once found a load of VHS videotapes. Videotapes? Videotapes of the old Muppet show for about, I don't know, about two or three pounds each. And so they were very cheap in a VHS box. And I bought them and my brother absolutely loved them. So I have memories of my childhood tied in with it memories of his childhood Mm -hmm. i would have seen it when it was on i would imagine either we got it from the video shop or it was the first time it was on the telly would have been the first time i saw it yeah yeah but definitely in my family's home with my family yeah aaron and i watched it every christmas eve when he would come to me right up until he got married so he would come to me and we (laughs) we would watch it and until he stopped drinking we would play the game where you have to have a drink every time you see a wreath Oh my God, don't play that game, people. Uh, You will be pissed by minute four. (laughs) Let's talk about the plot. Well, props to Dickens. He knew how to pen a story, right? And it is testament Mm. to the power of Charlie Boy's original that the Henson machine doesn't really mess with it. There is trademark Muppet charm, mischief and mayhem galore, of course. But the treatment of A Christmas Carol itself is hugely respectful, even if it is narrated by a blue furry Charles Dickens who hangs out with a rat. Which, gloriously, it is, allowing for a great many lols not found in the book. If I can interrupt here and say, I think Gonzo in this is best, Gonzo. Absolutely. I don't think Gonzo's ever been better than playing Charles Dickens in this. He's amazing. And the Gonzo touches to it as well. Like when they fly through, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but when they fly Mm -hmm. through the forest and he gets attached to a chicken and he's like, well, hello. (laughs) Which is something that is basically copied lifted homage to or whatever in uh guardians of the galaxy volume two their ship is crashing and uh drax is hanging on a wire at the back and banging into trees and all of that Ah. this basically gonzo in this going back to the plot the film does use a lot of dickens's original prose mostly in gonzo's mouth actually Mm. and it never talks down to the kids in its audience which is is wonderful sorry plot yes Ebenezer Scrooge is a big bag of dicks. He's rich, he's mean, and he's a misanthrope who would happily see the poor and needy dead to decrease the surplus population than share any of his vast wealth, mostly accrued evicting said poor and needy from their homes. Scrooge, man, who hurt you? It's Christmas Mm. Eve, and as per, he couldn't give a figgy pudding, giving his hard-working bookkeepers, amphibian Bob Cratchit and a crew of rattos, a hard time about having Christmas Day off before stomping back to his cold, dark rooms, previously owned by his now-dead partners, Jacob and Robert Marley. Oh, look, there they are, 
Bacchus goes to scare the bejesus out of Scrooge and warn him he's doomed for all time if he doesn't change his dickbag ways. <laughs> More ghosts are on the way. The ghost of Christmas past revisits Scrooge's lonely childhood and the time he chose money over love. The ghost of Christmas present shows him the joys and wonders of Christmas Day, including how rich in love, if poor in cash, Bob Cratchit and his big family of pigs and frogs are. Scrooge takes a shine to Bob's poorly son, Tiny Tim, played by Kermit's nephew, Robin the Frog, and is warned by the ghost that Tiny Tim will likely die if the future is not changed. And finally, the silent, scary-ass ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge the death and funeral of a wretched, unloved man. Who could it be? It's Scrooge, yeah. Scrooge promises to change his ways and finds himself back in his bedroom. And it's only Christmas morning. And so, Scrooge buys a massive turkey and makes a tiny rabbit carry it across London to celebrate Christmas Day with Bob, his family and the entire metropolitan Muppet population. Good man, Scrooge. You can't take it with you. Love, laughs, scares, sadness and redemption in a tight hour and a half. What's not to love? Yeah, I mean, what is not to love? I mean, if I'm going to be totally honest, this isn't the most technically accomplished of the Muppet films and it's not the funniest of the Muppet films and it's nowhere near as funny as the Muppet series. But in the same way that I can't, I cannot explain what it is about the rainbow connection that makes me want to start crying every time I hear it. I cannot explain what it is about this other than it's to use words like magic, which is just ridiculous. But it's absolutely fucking glorious. I love it. And Michael Caine is so fucking funny in it. All of my favourite funny lines are him. I just... The, the, the absolute joy of when he says, three ghosts will come, and he says... Can't I meet them all at once and get home? <laughs> I don't know why that really makes me laugh. And when they're at the Cratchit's house and he says something and then Miss Piggy says something and he says, I said that first. Oh no, that's that's when they're at his nephew's house and they're playing the game and his that's nephew's right. wife says, cat. And he goes, I said that. <laughs> I said that, yeah. I like darkness. Darkness is cheap. There's just so many brilliant lines in it. They're just, he is glorious in it, yeah. He is. And he can't sing and yet it's brilliant. And you mentioned how Rainbow Connection makes you like want yeah. to cry and you're not sure why. And it is, it's that, that heartstring tugging that starts as soon as the first chords of this film kick in. And I've christened it Pavlov's Frog because it's just my reaction to it. That's absolutely correct. Yeah. I mean, again, and there are flaws. If genuinely, I don't think The Ghost of Christmas Past looked great in 1992, particularly. And it certainly looks daft. But there is something innately funny about watching him fly holding onto the tiny hand (laughs) (laughs) even though it looks a bit rubbish it's a full-on loving yeah it's just the perfect christmas movie and i guess that's it where it doesn't have to be perfect technically it doesn't have to be the most perfect muppet movie but i think it brings together that dickens and muppet mashup just i just don't think they could have done it better when they originally started talking about adapting a christmas carol to make it a Muppet movie. They were going to have the various Muppets as the different ghosts, but they realised that the story's just too good to fuck about with, which is why Mm. they brought in Gonzo as the narrator, which is just perfect, because Gonzo's a space alien, and actually the narrator, who can see everything, that works really well to have this sort of alien creature dictating what's going on and knowing what's going on. 
And Rizzo the Rat mm-hmm. as the Greek chorus is just fantastic. That's where I, a lot of the humour comes from me is Rizzo. I absolutely love Rizzo the yeah. Rat and his food fixation. He's just here for the food and the yeah. bants. Love it. The actual chorus of staff as well is great. Where they're like, send the frog, he can say this. And then Kane shouts and they're all in the background saying stuff like, we don't agree with him, we don't. And then he says something they do and they go, <laughs> yes, for the frog. And all of that is just absolutely wonderful. I mean, I think the point is worth mentioning. It's so familiar, A Christmas Carol. And we've talked about it in so many different like ways. But I think it's easy to forget just how fucking brilliant it is. It is. Because without wanting to bring a conversation about the depressing state of the world into this, it is absolutely timeless. Timeless is one of those words that people use when they mean it still stands up. And I suppose it is that, but it is literally timeless. This could be set in the 1970s. It could be set in the present day, I think. It is absolutely, it's genius, A Christmas Carol. It is. It is almost the perfect story. I wanted to mention Stephen McIntosh because it's interesting because he is in this, and this is 1992. This is so sort of fun and family and whatever. The next year, 1993, he was in The Buddha of Suburbia, which I don't know if you've ever seen, Um, but I was absolutely just... Because I would have been like, I know, 19 when The Buddha of Suburbia came out. He and Naveen Andrews are so unfeasibly hot in it that when I was 19, it was almost impossible to watch it. And it's weird to think that within that year... Like, he went from being someone who was in this, for me, oh, cosy, like, happy family thing to being like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't know if I can watch him because he's so crazy hot. So does nephew Fred not give you palpitations? No, not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Not so much. I think what's interesting about this, though, is, of course, that if you don't like the Muppets, I've got a couple of friends who just don't understand the Muppets. Why are you still just friends do not with them? get it? Sorry, no. Well, exactly. Muppets. I always I always say to my friend Paul that the Muppets is going to be the thing that maybe causes us to have a row because he just doesn't do them. But I think it is accessible to people who've maybe never seen the Muppets before. But if you're a Muppets fan, it has lots of little touches, like what you might describe as I don't know Easter eggs or whatever mm. nowadays, like. When I was younger, my favourite Muppet was Animal. I absolutely just adored him. And he's only in this for a really tiny amount of time. But it's excellent. And Rolf. But it's so great. Like, his face, his face where he just really truculently just goes, ting (laughs) on his symbol, because that's all he's going to be allowed to do. I say his face. It's not. It's, you know what he's thinking. He's a puppet. But yet he manages to com- to communicate emotion and it is fantastic. I love that your favourite Muppet is Animal. I would have guessed that your favourite Muppet is Animal. My favourite Muppet, do you want to guess? Have I told you before? Well, who do I like? I mean, I'm also a big fan of Fuzzy Bear. Yay! He is my favourite <laughs> so Muppet. So I'm thinking it's probably him. <laughs> but I'm also a big fan of, of Rolf because Rolf has some standalone songs in the Muppet series, including... You and I and George, which again is the most perfect nonsense song. It's You and I and George is basically Bill Bailey's entire career in song form. <laughs> it's, it's rather brilliant. Back yeah. to Fozzie Bear. We've talked about your favourite Muppets. Come on yeah. now, stop hogging this. Yeah, he was my first favourite comedian. And that maybe <laughs> is why I love comedy. Although I think our boss would be like, I hope your taste got better because he is a terrible comedian. Yeah. And it did, Sarah. Yeah. I've grown. And in another way that I've grown, I absolutely appreciate Miss Piggy way more than I used to as a kid. 
I think Miss Piggy is a oh, yeah. brilliant little socialist pig in this. She's amazing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The chestnut truffling voice of socialism. Have you got a favourite song in this? I like Kermit's song about one more sleep till Christmas. And I also yeah. like the Ghost of Christmas Present song because there's lots of dancing. And he sounds oddly like Johnny Cash in it. He does sound like Johnny Cash. There's a brilliant bit in the outtakes where because that guy who's in the massive costume can't see what he's doing, he just keeps punching Michael Caine in the face. <laughs> My favourite is actually Marley and Marley because Marley and Marley sounds like, on first hearing, it doesn't sound like much, but actually it sounds like a proper old fashioned musical song. Mm. It's like actually feels like kind of Broadway about it because it's got the sort of the uh, the chorus, at, like and by chorus, I mean the gang you know, behind them. The it's chains, got that sort yeah. of a slow build, then the chorus mm. come in and I just love that. Whoa! Also, <laughs> Waldorf and Stutler are amazing. I absolutely love them. They were also two of my favourite Muppets. The lyrics to that song as well, because Paul Williams' songs are so great and the lyrics to that, there's a real chill in them. And there's a bit where they're yeah. sort of enjoying being ghosts and frightening him and then they realise what their fate is and you see them just sink and go, oh, they can't change. They're stuck with it. Mm. Yeah, I think it's really yeah. moving in the reviews that were a bit meh they're like oh it's a bit schmalsy it's a bit sentimental and it's I don't think you can deliver the joy and wonder of Christmas without someone somewhere thinking you're being a bit sentimental and schmaltzy but I actually think there are some actual scares in there they make they make Scrooge's life seem like something you wouldn't want even though he's massively mm. wealthy I think they do that really well and the sentimental bits, I think, aren't overly saccharine. I think they're genuinely sweet. I, I mean, I think you're right, because I think if we go back to my conversation about about the, the rainbow connection, <laughs> um, it, it's, it is the simplicity of it that is the genius mm. of it, because it, it's a song for children. So it, it's sure. not musically, like, it's not musically incredible, you know, and it doesn't use long words. But in the same way that, I find Michael Stipe to be incredible when he writes. It's because he he just does it in a really, this is what I want to say. Not, this is what I want to say, and I've made it really clever, mm-hmm. or I've made it really saccharine. It's just, this is this is just, just simple words in a sentence. Bruce Springsteen as well, very simple words in a sentence, and manages to push loads of emotion into something as simple as saying, I stand in every door. And you're like, oh, wow, I get I get that character just from that one line. Mm-hmm. I understand what it is. So I think it has a real touch of that. You know, I I will hold you close in a thankful heart. What a lovely mm-hmm. sentiment in a, in a really simple fashion. Yeah. It is joyful. And yeah, just really warm. The warm fuzzies give me the warm fuzzies. It's so lovely. Yeah. It isn't my favourite Christmas film, I've got to say. It's up there. It's like, ooh, they're almost joints, but... A different version of A Christmas Carol, which is Bill Murray in Scrooge, just pips it for me. Sorry, Hannah's shaking her head at me. But I watched them back to back on Christmas Eve. They are the only things that are on the telly on Christmas Eve. I had that conversation with, with the lads from Ghosts about Christmas specials. And they were they were saying, you know, if you are going to use sentiment, if you are going to use, you know, try and press these buttons, you have to earn it. Mm. And I don't know who has earned that more than the Muppets over the years, if I'm honest. Agreed. I'm just grinning. I mean, this is, I think, possibly way out of character for me to like something which is, you know, <laughs> kind of joyful and for children. You know what I'm like? <laughs> I'm like, oh, 
such a misery. I like dark stuff, but yeah, this is. But there is darkness in it. I think there is darkness yeah. in it. And there's a bit where Rizzo says, Do you not think it's going to be a little bit scary for some of the kids in the audience? And Gonzo goes, Well, they'll be all right. And then there's a bit where they go, This bit is scary. We'll see you later. And they fuck off. And I, I like that. Yeah. I like that it doesn't talk down to the kids. Because it isn't like The Simpsons. It's not like there's stuff in there for adults and it works on different levels. It is a kid's yeah. movie. It's just that it's a kid's movie, a family movie that everyone can enjoy. Yeah, agreed. So, Hannah, big question. Ooh, which way is it going to go? Uh, the Muppet Christmas Carol, rated or rated? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, absolutely. 100% rated. Totally rated. What are we watching next week? Well... So, as I look through the schedule of what we've watched this year, and I thought 1997 has been pretty kind to us. I've managed to make you watch two films from 1997 that you'd never seen before, both of which were absolutely excellent. Welcome to Sarajevo and... And The Castle. Yes. So I thought, should we just end on a massive 1997 bang, as it were, Spice World? Christmas spice up my life. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's going to be terrible, isn't it? (laughs) Standard Issue for all women.